This is the Almost Awakened Podcast, a no-nonsense approach to spirituality with your hosts, Brittany Hartley and Bill Reed. Here we dive deep into the wisdom traditions while acknowledging insightful breakthroughs in science, psychology, and human development. Our goal is to explore the good life and the very best of spirituality, no-nonsense required. Check us out at almostawaken.org, where you can check out past episodes, make a donation, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources we shared. And now, today's podcast episode. All right. All right. All right. Um, Britt, how are you? Good. How are you, Bill? Good. Off the air, we were talking about some things. Share the thing you were talking about first about the percentages, and we can... Yeah, so there's two kind of little rabbit holes that I've been playing this with this week. And usually we chit chat on, you know, what are you learning and what have you been up to? And so um, two things that I've been kind of digging into is Dawkins and Neil deGrasse Tyson talking about that they were reviewing this study where um, they were watching kind of like the percentage of religiosity. So in areas like the Bible Belt, you know, the religiosity will be high. But kind of like woo-woo spirituality, however you define that, you know, the crystals and the energy healing and spirits and paranormal and occult, all of that kind of world is very low in those areas. And then you go to like the Pacific Northwest and, you know, the religiosity goes down, but the kind of other forms of spirituality go really up. And the really curious thing is they go across the country and kind of did this survey and they were reviewing this survey is that per- the percentage stayed the same across the board. So like the percentage of whatever religiosity and woo-woo spirituality. And so the theory that they were discussing that I was super interested in was that uh, maybe there's like a percentage of the human population that is more prone to what I would call just like imagination, like imaginative thinking. And that's not a bad thing. That's not magical thinking. Yeah, yeah. That's not like a, that the reason that we have excelled so much as humans is because we're able to imagine things and work toward that thing and mm-hmm. do it in community. Right. So it's not, it's not a, it's not an insult that you're, you know, that to say someone's more or less imaginative, but the like percentage stayed the same across the board um, based on just kind of adding up the religiosity and, you know, the other forms of spirituality. So the, the anyway, that was a little, yes. The what uh-huh. they believe was ch- changed, but the percentage of people who believed in the unseen. Yes. Mm-hmm. Perhaps less rational versus the seen reality rational in front of them. Again, who we can argue what's reality, but um, mm. that percentage Endlessly. stays the same. Yeah. That's so that was really interesting study and a really interesting to watch those two minds um, discuss it because they have kind of different stances in, in atheism. Richard Dawkins is obviously a much more kind of stern atheist, much more, um, you know, harsh on religion and Neil Tyson deGrasse is not as much. So, so it was interesting to hear them talk about it, but yeah. yeah. And then what were you discussing this morning? That was so interesting. Well, I was going to say, welcome to the almost awakened podcast. I'm Bill real. This is Britt Hartley. And we're just having a little bit of conversation. Our guest will be with us here in a few minutes, but we thought we'd just kind of open it up and talk for a minute about what's been going on. Um, Kara Burrell, uh, who is a TikToker, Nuanceo, uh, who was on Mormonism Live maybe a month ago or so, we had a conversation about uh, free will, and we were talking about whether there is free will or not, whether 
our choices are constrained to the choice that we make in a moment, even though there is the illusion of free will, right? We're inside our heads thinking we're going through pros and cons and, and we are. And at the end of the day, like we go like, Oh, here's, I got these two choices. I could pick either one. I'm going to go with a instead of B when in reality, B is probably already out of the question and A is already taken. Um, and so just this morning I did an interview with Scott Dyer from Rami Umptum ruminations, part of our umbrella podcast. And we had about an hour and 10 minute conversation on free will and uh, just talked about it at length. And you and I were talking, make the point you made because I, I chuckled. <laughs> it's, it's kind okay. of funny about free will, whether, whether there is a conscious choice happening or not. Yeah. So with free will, you and I have not podcasted yet and maybe we will, maybe we'll make it a project and go into it, but I have yet to podcast on free will because I, I genuinely can follow the arguments that we have no free will and it makes sense to me and I can, I can, I can get on board with it, but I don't understand it enough to teach it to someone else or like there's really complicated questions about, okay, so what is the difference between choice and what, and free will and what, how are you defining these terms? And so that's just, that's just a message to me that if you don't know something well enough to teach it, you don't understand it well enough yet yeah and so i follow the arguments you know especially of course like sam harris is really great in this space um and i and i'm so interested what we were talking about is that space where your brain has already made the decision but you're not in on the secret yet that to me is fascinating so there's that little period of time where your brain has chosen what it wants to do and that conscious part of you uh, is still not in on yeah. on that information, and then it's given to you, and then we come up with all these reasons later yeah. on top of it. But that decision was made kind of in the dark, and that's what it's called. Like, like there's parts of the, our brain that are working in the dark. We're not aware of what's going on. Yeah, and so, and that, so yeah, go ahead. I was gonna say so that listeners understand. This started back in the 1980s, and even to this day, the research is held pretty consistent where. They are able to study when a person um, notifies, like when their reasoning says they made a decision and we can tap into the brain with certain uh, you know, electrode sensors and we can tell when the brains made the decision. And there's about a 300 millisecond gap where your brain unconsciously, you're, you're not aware of it inside your consciousness in your, in your, um, your reasoning of how you're going to make the choice uh, the decisions made unconsciously and then 300 milliseconds later a it rises up inside your consciousness where you reason out you're going to do that thing so if i pick um you know i'm going to go for italian or sushi today later today um the moment i pick i'm okay that's it i'm going to do italian 300 milliseconds eat earlier my subconscious already made the decision and so as you pointed out we're the we're the last ones to know aren't we <laughs> yes and i will say i do think that there are there are healthier times to go down this rabbit hole. I I think I went down this rabbit hole a little bit too early mm. because when you I do think that when you're deconstructing so you're losing your sense of self and your beliefs and your morality and your family and your community and all of that is deconstructing. I I actually genuinely think that it's probably not the right time to go down the rabbit hole of whether or not you have free will, because there is some kind of um, psychological instability that can happen with that. It can be really disorienting. And so maybe that's, I would say that that's something 
we should go into maybe once you feel like you're a little bit more stable in your deconstruction, yeah. because um, it does have some psychological, especially if you're kind of experiencing this dissolving of, of sense of self, which happens when you deconstruct, um, it may not be the best tool for you at that time, but it's super yeah. interesting to learn about. And, and you're right. Like the data says that if you, if you arrive at the conclusion, there is no free will, there is no real choices being made, then um, the, the psychological, the, the psychology behind it is that you'll, you'll have a more negative outlook on life. <coughs> Excuse me. You'll have a more negative outlook on life. You'll have, <clears throat> you'll be more apt to, screw somebody over, you'll be more apt to uh, be aggressive. Um, so there are lots of negative connotations to arriving at that conclusion. And I would I would simply note that it doesn't have to be that way. It, it helps me, actually. I think I'm better because of it, only because I recognize that whatever tools I put in my tool bag today, it will directly lead to me showing up different tomorrow. Not that, not that free will is there, but that... Um, I'm more likely knowing all that stuff to make active decisions to increase the amount of resources and tools I've got, you know? It also can really increase compassion, right? Instead Towards of, others, yeah. Yeah, instead of thinking that he should have done better or known better or all these things, yeah. um, it can just kind of help us to lead with compassion that genuinely everyone's doing the best that they can in their life. And I think that that's generally true too. Yeah. All right, so I'm super excited to, we've got Cami. um, who's in the waiting room now. And I'm super excited to introduce what we're going to do today. You may bring her up. Yeah. Bring her up here. There she is. <laughs> Drinking Hi. Diet Coke. Drinking I Diet am. Coke like a real Mormon. <laughs> <laughs> it's the true test, right? <laughs> That's right. So this is my friend, Cami Hirsch. She's amazing. She has a master's degree in marriage and family therapy, postgraduate degree work in sex therapy, um, includes training in sexual dysfunction, sexual trauma, gender and orientation, problematic sexual behaviors, sexual education. Um, she's the host of the Sex Therapy 101 podcast, and she specializes in all things relationships, sexuality, and spirituality, which is just so important. I know of a lot of people who have deconstructed, and I don't know a single, and you know, we have like better ways to do this. And some people are like really good at uh, really getting their core values up and running or whatever. But I've never met a single person after deconstructing some kind of Puritan religion, uh, say that like, I totally intuitively knew what to do with my sex life and my mm. body and all of that. Like, we just need a lot of help with that. So it still feels it still feels tabooish right like i'm gonna feel and shame if i ask you about sex toys or i'm gonna feel shame <laughs> if i talk about touching myself right so right. Uh, so we're super happy to yeah. have cami on and our first question is just why um after getting your degree in marriage and family therapy why were you drawn to kind of sex therapy work why why go into that field yeah well yeah thanks for having me this is really fun um it wasn't that after I did marriage and family therapy, I decided to do sex therapy. It was actually the other way around. So I knew the end game from the beginning that my work, my life's passion was going to be in sexual health. And that was the path um, that would get me there best. So, um, you know, right now I'm about eight months out from finishing my PhD in clinical sexology. So I'm hoping if you guys are kind, you'll let me um, add 
my dissertation <laughs> research link to the yes. show notes. <laughs> I Absolutely. Need, I need a thousand female participants over 30 to help. And um, we'll be taking a look at that with more research about um, sexual health and the religious background we come from and those outcomes. So it's even the point of my dissertation work, you know, and not just my life's work here. So I think it just became very clear to me. There's so much um, projection about me as a sex therapist and all sex therapists deal with that projection. And I don't do this work because sex came easy. It's because I had to do all the unlearning and relearning (coughs) and it was really damn hard. And so I believe it's uh, fixable. I believe it's adjustable. I believe it can be flexible. I believe we can make progress and have development in our sexuality. And so that's why I do the work that I do. And I think, you know, some people, there's that assumption that, um, you know, this came easy for people who are sex therapists, but most of us do work that we fought for, right? I think that's Mm. true with you, Bill. And I think that's true with you, Britt, that we often find our life's passion in an area where we fought pretty damn hard (laughs) for the ground we covered. (laughs) And I'll add, I think there's a little bit in your personality that likes the taboo and likes the Mm -hmm. strange Yes. A little bit of that too. Yes, yes, yes. There is that I'm not scared to go in some of those harder directions. Yeah. Bill's like me too. I like it because when when you really value creating spaces where humans get to be more vulnerable and get to be more of themselves, you you go out of your way to be a little vulnerable yourself. Like let me reveal something. And let me make it safe for you to reveal something you want to reveal. Cause we're all begging to open up and have others see us. And it's such a, such a hard thing to do, you know? Yeah, I agree. Well, I wanted to uh, kind of jump into with my first question. One of the things I noticed is that in the religious tradition, we all came from you, you marry, you're taught to marry young. You really aren't taught to take your time and get to know that person. Really? Like you figure like, Hey, I've been at BYU for three weeks and I'm ready to rock and roll. Let's get married. And the reality is once you do that, once you jump into a relationship that's intimate, at some point you maybe realize that both of you were kind of pretending a little bit and you're not being yourself, right? And so at some point, if you're going to lean into the space of being having a healthy sexuality, you have to learn how to negotiate. You have to learn how to let the other person know what your needs and wants are and to sort out how they're going to meet those and how you're going to meet theirs. And I'm, I'm just curious what your thoughts are on negotiating within sexuality and what's healthy and what's unhealthy, any tips or tricks uh, for that? Sure. And I think we need to define what we mean by negotiation, because I'll use that word sometimes too. And then people think that we're coming to a table, you know, business like negotiation. But when we're talking about negotiating sexual needs or the sexual relationship, we have to always make sure we're looking out for exploitation, that my desire to get my needs met isn't exploiting you with any form of power that I have here, whether it's the priesthood or whether it's I'm the breadwinner or whether it's, you know, and so 
I think with a lot of my clients, before we can get to negotiation, we have to know ourselves first. And that's often the biggest obstacle for many of my clients to know yourself sexually before you can come to this table and say, this is what I want sexually. You know, mm. if we're looking at this, I mean, this is the Almost Awakened podcast. So if we're going to look through any type of philosophical lens, it's very much that um, that Viktor Frankl logos therapy, those four existential crises that, you know, Yalom talked about. And one of those is the isolation from self, right? And so uh, that before we can negotiate our sexual needs, we have to overcome that existential crisis of isolation from our sexual self. And um, so that we can show up honestly. Um, I think the church is unfair to both males and females in that case of uh, giving permission to know yourself sexually, right? And um, to bring down that veil that stops that, that creates that isolation from ourself, all the thought stopping, all the watch your thoughts, words and deeds, all the turn off the radio, burn the CD, <laughs> leave the movie, you know, it takes a certain degree of, you know what, no, let's stay in the rated R movie and figure out what it was about that scene that you really enjoyed mm. that you know, that's true to your sexual personality, because I can ask all my clients, I'm like, tell me about your social self. And they're like, well, these are the situations in which I thrive. And these are the situations that I don't really enjoy. Okay, tell me about your intellectual self. Oh, these are the rabbit holes I really enjoy going down. Oh, I'm really not interested in this sector. Okay, tell me about your sexual self. And it's crickets, 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 because we haven't allowed ourselves to take down that veil of the isolation from sexual self. And so, so you're like, how do we negotiate? And I'm like, well, a lot of the work I do, they want to start at negotiation. And it's, but there's still too much isolation from self to do that well. Yeah. That was a yeah. non-answer, Bill. No, no that's okay. That's so, that's so interesting, though. That's so interesting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's so much shame on one side and often the risk of manipulation on the other. And really, every human being should be safe to ask for what they need and recognize that that doesn't guarantee the other side's willing to give it and they shouldn't have to give it. They, mm -hmm. it should be, what can I do to help you have the best life possible? What can you do to help me have the best life possible? And people have their own triggers and issues. Right. And so it, it I think it's one of the most difficult things to do is to have two individuals in a healthy way negotiate for how they both get their sexuality needs met and both feel safe. Yeah. And I think of it a lot like a Venn diagram where this is me and this is you, and we're looking for the ways in which we overlap. But one of these, um, and I don't know if we can totally blame um, fundamental purity based religions on this. I think some's in our American culture too, but this idea that love is you will complete me and you won't have eyes for anyone else. And sex is the ultimate expression of love. And these ideas that are not helpful when no. we bring our full self to the sexual table, that really there will be things in that Venn diagram that we don't line up on. There will be ideas or desires or erotic um, interests that we don't completely line up on. And the goal is how do we maximize the Venn diagram and self-soothe ourselves when we realize there's going to be a part of our sexual self that maybe won't be satisfied with our partner and that that's super realistic. Mm. And, and I don't think that those ideas of are, are, can completely be blamed by, you know, purity culture, but I'm going to let it be partially responsible. Yeah, <laughs> right. yes. Amen. If the boot fits. No. <laughs> 
but that can create so much insecurity in a relationship because our idea is we should only have eyes for each other. We should complete each other romantically and sexually. And, and, and really, when it comes down to it, we start building our erotic map from the time we're born of, oh, mom and dad, mom wears certain shoes when they go out onto a date. Now, all of a sudden, black patent leather shoes are sexy to me. You know, we just start storing these things away from the beginning when we start to observe that some relationships are different than another. Mm. And so it's really unrealistic to think that we will completely eclipse each other sexually, that we'll just line up but it can feel really threatening to open our eyes and say, oh, there is a sexual interest we don't share. Okay, that doesn't say anything about me. It doesn't say anything about you. Um, thank you for sharing that with me. That was super interesting. And try to really maximize where we meet, make that Venn diagram as large as, as we can. And I've heard you say before the phrase, don't yuck someone's yum. Right. Yeah. That's yeah, a yeah. phrase that you use. And it's and that's not me. mine. That's Albanacchio. Oh. Oh, okay. Mine, I yeah. remember you saying that. And I was like, okay, that's such a great little catchphrase. Mm-hmm. So if you are meeting with, um, you know, two new clients uh, who are married and let's say that they have been raised in something similar to like a, a Mormonism or a Jehovah's Witness or a fundamental Christianity. And they just said, we've just lost our faith in the past month. We're trying to, um, you know, re-explore, you know, explore our sexuality. What would you expect? This is such a big question, but what would you predict that these are going to be some common hang up places as this couple is going on this journey of their sexual life kind of really expanding? What would you expect to see? Like, okay, I'm going to predict if you had to like you know, everybody's different and there's going to be some unique places, but if you could predict some just kind of overall hangups, what would those places be? Yeah. The first one I would predict would be um, that, hey, this couple probably doesn't understand sexual health outside of a purity lens or a law of chastity, right? And so we'll go like all the way back of um, just really securing the sec- the six principles of sexual health, which are easy to find podcasts and books on, which is first, do we understand what consent looks like in a relationship? Second, do we understand non-exploitation? Third, we both have a right for protection from STIs and unwanted pregnancy. Fourth, there should be sexual honesty. Fifth, there should be shared values. And sixth, the goal is really mutual pleasure here. And so we'll go all the way back and from, you know, if someone's upbringing was like, don't touch it, you'll break it as far as masturbation goes, or don't watch it, it will destroy you or, you know, these kinds of tropes, we don't have really a foundation of sexual health to build on. And so I'll be looking for that of be like, what does sexual health even mean to you? If it's not a list of do's and don'ts. So we'll totally start there. My mom said the whole Harry Palms thing. It scared, oh, the, really? hell, scared the hell out of me. Yeah, honestly. <laughs> my my husband got told he'd become an introvert. And I'm like, okay, so mm. that shows in a charismatic religion wow. what the worst possible thing to become is. Yeah, yeah, doesn't it? <laughs> As an introvert, I'm offended that that's something to avoid. I'm more offended that you're offending <laughs> introverts than the sexual thing. We yeah. know what led to that, Britt. Yeah, so so I would start there. Um, A lot of couples don't have a lot of education about mutual pleasure. Uh, 
because purity cultures define sex as a penis and a vagina, we really have a limited view as to the role of the clitoris in female pleasure. And it's, I mean, I'm saying it lightly, but it's heartbreaking for a couple to realize um, just how very little they knew about mutual pleasure, how very little they understood about anatomy and physiology. So we'd go, I'm kind of rambling. So probably first I will stop and say, hey, we've got to get a handle on the six principles of sexual health. Second, what do we know about anatomy and physiology? Probably very little. And then third is that isolation from self of your brain is your largest sex organ. Do you have any idea what ideas that you find sexually enjoyable? You know, because there's been so much don't think about it. And um if I'm not thinking about my partner right now in this moment, I'm committing some type of sin. When there are couples who have the potential, we have as humans potential to be sexually active, whether or not our bodies are functioning until the day we die, right? Um, and we need to be able to access the creative part of our brain to find spaces in which we play together, even when we are soft in our 80s, and there is not a much color left in our skin or our hair. <laughs> and we go somewhere together in our minds. So that is the second, that's a big obstacle I see for a lot of people who leave a purity culture is I have no idea what to do with my mind. And a lot of people saying, just tell us what to do with our hands. <laughs> but really scared to know what to do with their minds in an erotic space. There's so much isolation there. I have a follow-up question and I didn't prepare, I didn't send this to you. So this will be off the cuff here, but, um, and I know that there's a lot to say about pornography, but in this process that you're talking about, about this couple learning what sexual health is, learning about their bodies, learning about what they like and don't like, in what ways does pornography help and hinder that process? Because I've seen women who like, hey, I watched Game of Thrones and now I have a better sense of what I like and don't like mm -hmm. sexually. And then I see some people get really hung up by mm -hmm. by pornography. So what would you kind of advise there? Well, it's a huge topic. That's like a three hour topic. I know. Right? I know. So, um, so what's helpful if I'm looking at first the six principles of sexual health. What's helpful is there's a lot more ethical porn out there these days that is modeling consent, that's modeling mutual pleasure, that's modeling safe words, it's modeling the use of barriers and protection. That is awesome. Because um, in the past, if we're using porn for educational purposes, we're going to end up pretty disappointed, you know, um, especially just even in understanding anatomy and physiology. It's like, hey, that like three minute video might have taken eight hours. They might have taken several hour breaks. What's happening might not be physically actually even realistic. And so porn as an education is not great. It's a form of entertainment that some enjoy and some don't. There are more ethical forms out there if we want to um, pursue it. And um, not everybody is participating in a trafficked industry. There are ethical um, movements being made. Um, and so you're right, though, that sometimes when paying attention to eroticism that we're viewing or partaking of from entertainment can teach us more about ourselves of, Ooh, I would never, that is not on my map or there is something about that. That's kind of relevant for me. 
interesting. Um, but I don't think there's like a mm, black and white rule. It would be about the couple's agreements first. And we have to do a lot of groundwork before we can have that kind of discussion, you know? So interesting. Bill, I think you had the next question. Yeah. I just, I wanted to ask in terms of, and kind of plays off of this. I mean, um, in me and my wife's marriage, we've been married for 25 years and we've had a ton of fun in this arena and it has really been on a constant basis, changing it up, doing something different, doing something new. And it feels like us human beings, we deeply crave variation. We deeply crave novelty, at least generally, if I'm not going to stereotype everyone, but generally. And I'm just curious what your thoughts are on what it, what it is or what people should think about or consider in order to bring in variation and novelty into the sexual part of their relationship so as to keep things fresh. Yeah, I'm looking something up real quick because I want to represent it right. And I'm forgetting the last one, but... Um, when we are looking at ideas that are erotic to us and that are interesting, um, it makes me think about Morin's book, The Erotic Mind. I don't know if that's on your um, top of mind or something you've read before, but it's he not. talks about these four pillars of sexual eroticism that most of us fit into where one is uh, playing with anticipation can be more relevant to some than others, playing with power is usually more relevant to some than another. Um, overcoming ambivalence is another very erotic idea of, no, I am sure, you know? And um, and what is the fourth? Okay, do you edit this at all? Yeah, it, it takes your time. <laughs> okay. It, it's been interesting because, you know, we, we came from this system and the system really didn't prepare us. It, it kind of made me feel like once I got married on the sexual side of things, everything would just be great. Yeah. And you know, you get the honeymoon phase, which, you know, is awkward, but generally it's great. And then you're trying to to figure out kind of other things to do. And it's just over time, every time we've gotten to a moment where we got uh, bored or it got mundane, we just, we just sat down and said, Hey, what are, what is both of us thinking about that would kind of shake things up a little mm -hmm, bit? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so anyway. Yeah. Okay. I found it according to Morin in his book, um, the erotic mind, which is really great. Uh, the four cornerstones of eroticism, or this is kind of the recipe for hot sex. And you're using the term novelty, but I bet the way in which you do something new probably hits one of these four cornerstones for you or your partner, which is playing with longing and anticipation, playing with the violation of prohibitions or taboos, like in a different place, um, you know, uh, searching for power and overcoming ambivalence. And so a lot of times when it's like, we're talking about novelty, what's novel for one might be vanilla for another. So I kind of try to go one level deeper and say, which cornerstone does that hit for you? Um, is it the violating a prohibition that a new toy or going into Adam and Eve together that that increases this prohibition that starts the erotic charge or is it the longing and the anticipation um is it you know and so when that might be going like a level deeper for not just trying something new is going to be enjoyable for every couple it's probably going to be enjoyable if that's hitting one of those four cornerstones for them individually or collectively what was the fourth one i heard the playing with longing so it, it, uh, it's longing and anticipation yeah Second, violating prohibitions. Third, searching for power. 
And fourth, overcoming ambivalence. Overcoming ambivalence. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, cool. I'm just making notes of these and I'll send this out in the, into the chat with all the viewers as well so that they can yeah. see that. Yeah. It's a great book that, I mean, some people, the title is just too much to even have on their Kindle or on their shelf, you know, the yeah, erotic no, mind that feels not, really scary. To not in the real household. <laughs> we'll check it out. <laughs> I do. I do love like by giving language to those things because I've never heard, you know, you know, Bill's just talking about just kind of this overall novelty and you've broken it down into four Mm-hmm. You've broken down the language more in, in a way that I hadn't heard before. And that just opens up um, just giving language to be able to communicate with. I just feel like that is so helpful to break down that language and what is what about this is is erotic. And so mm-hmm. that's really, really interesting and just so helpful for those communications. Yeah. And that's why you mentioned, you know, someone just watching Game of Thrones or in my my office, my walls here a little bit more about Outlander, actually, but um, you know, trying to bring down that veil of isolation from self, we'll have that discussion. Okay, what was it in this scene from these four corners? It's like, oh my gosh, I didn't realize it was this playing with um, this longing and anticipation. Like I couldn't breach time to get to you. And I wanted so badly through the, through the stone, you know, and it's like, okay, the longing is there for you. That is super sexually relevant for you. How do we as a couple play with this idea of longing that can really char- get charged for you? I had to make a boundary with Outlander because my mother watches it at my house when the kids are gone. And I say, mother, you're not allowed to watch this. I had to have a boundary of just like, I don't feel super sexually comfortable watching this scene with you, mother. <laughs> I'll just add a little tidbit about me that no one knows. Unless you've been to my house. When we bought our, our the home we live in now, we bought it about the same time that we had left our faith system. And we, you know, for the first time, my wife and I don't have to do art the way the church wants us to do art. Right. And so in our master bedroom, we put several pieces of very sexy art on the wall. Nothing, nothing overly nude because we wanted our kids to be able to walk in and not be too crazy. Mm -hmm. But we put art on our walls that tells you that this is a, this is an erotic space. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And something that we really get a kick out of it. It really helps the mood. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that I would say would be overcoming that ambivalence of no, we are claiming that this is part of who we are. We are not Amen. unsure about this. We, you know, I would put that in one of those cornerstones of why it feels so satisfying to have yeah. decorated your bedroom that way. Love it. Mm, so mm-hmm. interesting. So follow-up question, you know, I'm, I'm just really curious about how this process works in, you know, because Bill and I just talk a lot about, um, spiritual growth and spiritual transformation, mm-hmm. especially after deconstruction. That's kind of the space that we enjoy playing in. And so, you know, we've talked a little bit about hangups for if a couple had left together and how, how that would work. But what would you expect common hangups to be if one of those people in the marriage is still kind of in the religious faith trans in, in the faith tradition? Um, mm. How would that, how would those conversations maybe go differently? And what are some other like 
there's some, I just sense that there's other minds to be aware of when the couple isn't leaving and exploring that mm -hmm. kind of at, at the same time, because often mm -hmm. one will kind of leave that narrative before the other. So what yeah. would you expect yeah. in that journey? Yeah. And I, I work with that dynamic quite a bit and I, um, I enjoy it. Um, my, my parents were a mixed faith couple. And so I have some experience with the world and I find it really fulfilling to, um, be able to treat each party as though we're walking sacred ground, even though the ground is very different in that transition, you know, and um, I want to feel very safe for both parties um, when that's the case. And I usually don't get any objections from either party when we start talking about the sexual health principles, because I think it clears up that fear that if there's not for the strength of the youth, there's nothing. You know, and so so we really lay that groundwork to give a lot of uh, security to both parties that um, outside of prohibitions, there still remain values to explore together. I mean, there's that fear that there's going to be the sexual free for all if we abandon our religious institution of choice, right? That's so interesting because like that's what's recommended for like if you're trying to put your morality together, it can feel like if I leave this system, it's just going to be like nothing, mm. like there's no right and wrong. Mm. Um, so that's so interesting that that model of like you've got to create some order so that you can step forward into the chaos still applies mm. for this space too. And the sexual health principles work. I can get a lot of buy-in from both people being like, no, this is Matt. No, this is important. And, and sometimes the party who's uh, doubling down or enjoys um, participating in the more orthodox faith, um, it can feel really calming to go, oh, okay, we agree more than, than we thought. I, I mean, they're not really crazy principles. Most people can get behind them and the research you know, and that these are the principles that prevent uh, sexual trauma, prevent uh, sexual um, disappointment, you know. And so we'll, we'll create some agreements together before we start exploring so that there's enough security. Exploration in any relationship, you can only explore as far as you have trust to hold. Does that make sense? And so we have to create the trusting foundation before we can explore. Um, and we'll have that conversation. And really soon after, we'll start having the then what does this mean conversation. Um, the porn comes up really quick. And um, maybe even mm, for the party who's leaving orthodoxy, some grief at the loss of their adolescence and what they wish they would have gone through. That can be hard for the partner to hear, you know, and I really try to soothe that over. They are not making any requests. This is some grief, you know, and this is theirs because there's that fear of, um, do I have to now allow them to do all the exploration that they're grieving? They didn't have the chance to, in their 20s, you know, I mean, church kind of knows what they're doing that decade of, if we look at uh, psychological development, just human development, those 20s are really important to internalize your individual authority. And we, we send everybody on missions and we get them married and we really stress the importance of outsourcing that authority, you know, and so there's totally a repressed development that you have to go through. And, um, and that can feel threatening. Um, and so we start to have those conversations, pornography, grieving the loss of the adolescence that we wish maybe we would have had those kinds of things. 
It just really lines up with just other areas that mm -hmm. Bill and I have talked about in the past where, you know, we, we talked to one, um, you know, religious trauma expert who just really talked about deconstruction is all, especially for women, you know, your, your inner child, your inner voice that was squashed down so young, you know, so, so young. Mm -hmm. And you really have to go back and reparent yourself at five, mm -hmm. eight, 10, and you just have to kind of regrow, allow that, allow that repression to kind of regrow up and it's painful mm -hmm. and it mm -hmm. there's a lot of grief there but we've talked about that for other areas of of spirituality and, and inner voice and inner child work and shadow work and all those other things so it's interesting mm -hmm. sexuality that is not sexuality, that different. yes it's a part of that mm -hmm. there was mm -hmm. something stopping me from kind of growing up in a natural way here yeah. Um, where you have to go back and kind of regrow up what do you like and what you don't like mm -hmm. <laughs> you know when you first leave I don't know you have no mm -hmm. idea because I just remember, you know, you're supposed to just be asexual and then you get married and boom, you'll just be a mm -hmm. sexual, blossoming sexual creature. Yeah. And it can be really painful to watch our partner do that because we can feel excluded from it. It can be lonely. Um, but one of the principles I'll really try to work on my couples with is learning to take our partner seriously without taking them personally to be like, oh, they are grieving. A loss here. Let's take that seriously. But we don't have to take that personally. You don't have to fix this for them. We don't, you know, that we can see the pain that they're going through and take it seriously, but not take it personally. Um, I think more so for women in the church who that sexual responsibility was kind of thrust upon our shoulders as the gatekeepers. Uh, we want to take that on. And it's still giving ourselves permission that, um, we don't have to take this on, but we can take it seriously. We can deal with it compassionately, but um, you can still stand in your own ground if we're in a mixed faith. Even if even if it's not a mixed faith marriage, couples do this differently. You know, I've seen couples both leave the church, but very differently leave the church. You know, so the leaving together, the staying together can doesn't mean it's easy, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, I, I want to ask and I'm hoping you'll push back against this. <laughs> um, He's an Enneagram eight. I'll just tell yeah, I'm yeah. a three. Okay. So. Mm -hmm. um, in relationships, passion sometimes really thrives in the space of turmoil and not getting along. Mm -hmm. Like, Hey, we had a fight today and now we make up tomorrow. And, and it feels as though I've read a bunch on this and I've experienced it myself in my own marriage. When, when me and my spouse, as time has gone on, we learn how to cooperate better with each other, to be, uh, to be more, um, to, to compromise easier, to try to soften up things, we, not to fight as loud or as hard as we, if we did in the past. And sometimes that also seems to kind of kill the passion a touch. Like there's this person who you love and trust and everything is so good and warm and fuzzy. Like once you have that uh, trust with somebody that they show up in ways that are supportive of you almost all the time, it feels like passion sometimes is a tricky thing to kind of hang on to. And I'm just curious what your thoughts are because we, we want both, right? We want to have a mm -hmm. dependable, loving um, relationship that's super healthy. And we want the push and pull of, uh, of a dynamic sex life that sometimes those two seem to kind of be in contradiction with each other. Yeah, they are. Any, any thoughts? Yeah. Um, 
you're using some words. If uh, if you were talking to Esther Perel, she'd be saying this is the paradox of wanting our partner to be the anchor and the wave simultaneously. Yeah, yeah. Um, if you were talking, if Jennifer Finlayson Fife was talking, she'd be saying this is where we're seeking for differentiation, where we're balancing our individuality with our emotional connection. And whenever one of those gets out of balance, um, it affects the sexual relationship. Um, so what you're recognizing is a very um, applicable paradox in the relationship and sex therapy world. And, you know, I don't know where it came from, if it was in our psychology, if it's God, if it's, I have no idea if this was evolution, but the more we are in a caretaker role of somebody, the less we have the capacity to eroticize them. Mm. For that, I am extremely grateful. For whatever it was that created this, as we take care of our children and as we take care of our parents and as we take care of clients, and it is really fantastic that, that the more we are taking care of them, the less easy it is for us to eroticize them. It's great in all of the other areas except for our marriage. And so in that case, we have to be doing this balancing of, Balancing the emotional connection with our individuality, right? My husband will come home and be like, he is most sexually charged when he's gone and hit a home run and played softball. I think he's okay with me saying that. When he's, <laughs> when he's had this time to really be an individual and feel his body. And, um, and so there are times for caretaking. And the more we are in that role, the harder it is to eroticize each other. That goes against some of what we learned in the church, that we are to steward one another, that we are to take care of one another. And it is really funny that the more we do that, we think, oh, we're so emotionally connected. And you can have um, love can look, sex can look all different kinds of ways, right? It can be that passion up against the wall. It can be the sad, someone just died, we're crying. It can, sex can look a ton of different ways. Um, but when you're saying the more we're connected emotionally, the harder it is to tap into that passion. It's because the passion is I want something and I want it with you or from you or, you know, and I'm going to take it. And some people are much more comfortable in that realm sexually than others. Yeah. Yeah. Just that when, when things become dependable, when things become consistent, when things become steady and it's much more healthy and there's just less um, angst or turmoil, it just feels like it's really easy for the passion to slide while the rest of your relationship seems to be getting better. And I think it would be what we're defining passion as, yeah. you know, because that might be the role in which you find the most sexual enjoyment. And there's going to be someone else listening to the show who's like, I don't really like that. That doesn't do it for me. I prefer the, um, and so it's like, hmm, it's like trying to have a talk about sex, like food, be like, do you like food? <laughs> It'd be like, yes, <laughs> it's the kind of food we're talking about. Right. Yeah, and for a yeah. lot of women who sit on my couch and are like, I don't like sex. I'm going to wait a few months before I say this until we have enough trust and exploration together. But you might not like the kind of sex you're having because mm. it's like saying, I don't like food. I'm like, okay, you might be being offered seafood and hate it. Right. And so when you say the passion changes, um, there are different kinds of sex that different people 
find most satisfying. Yeah. I want to put up a, a comment from a listener. So let me get rid of the little screen thing there. Uh, AW says, maybe I missed this, but how do you integrate raising children with teaching, expressing sexuality in the home? Religion is exerting control. How should, how can parents exert control properly? Like kids do need boundaries. And yet we, sh- you know, and it, walking that fine line of a parent of how you get your kids to at least understand the world at large without manipulating them or coercing them to mm-hmm. be who they're not. Yeah. A lot of us are wanting our kids to have a different experience than we had, <laughs> but we don't know how to go about that. Yeah. Um, and two ideas. One, we'd start teaching sexual health values. Consent starts so young and it has nothing to do with sex. It's just, you're the owner of your body. You want to hug? Nope. Okay. Awesome. You know, it doesn't mean, you know, why don't you like me? We're not going to start throwing those kind of manipulation tactics at them Um, with, because these sexual health principles aren't something I came up with or something some other therapist came up from. These came from the World Health Organization as if as a whole in the universe, we exercise these six things, we reduce sexual trauma we reduce sexual harm. So I start there. These are the safety skills that our kids um, that our kids need. And also, there's totally a place for what's appropriate. But I use that word very differently than the church uses it. I don't mean what's sinful. When I say inappropriate, I mean what's a what the level of readiness is based on a child's development. So if it's appropriate, meaning, is this their level of readiness? And there's fabulous books out there. I really like the ones I'm turning around by um, Robbie. What's Robbie's last name? Robbie Harris has really wonderfully sex positive uh, books based on readiness. Um, I'm sure you've heard before. I love what the UUA does. They have, um, it's called Owls. It's our whole lives. I went down and trained in that curriculum. Um, totally age readiness with sexual values, which is we're teaching. Um, well, and that's another conversation to have, right? So when we're talking about values, we're not talking about behaviors. And that is something that people coming out of uh, an Orthodox religion don't understand is you, you might find abstinence important, but it's not a value, that's a behavior. And if you pull up a big list of values, one person in a marriage might value abstinence because their value, their personal core value is obedience. And another might because their personal core value is safety. So we might be making the same thing really important, but from a different personal value. And so when I'm talking about, you know, shared, um, teaching our kids sexual values. I'm not talking about sexual behaviors of we do this and we don't do that. We're talking about being honest, being um, valuing consent. So that is a conversation that gets really, really messy when we were presented with the For the Strength of the Youth handbook as here are your values and they were not values at all. They were behavior person. And so we have to back that up and be like, hold on, this is more than semantics. We have to agree on what this word is. Um, But there's a ton of great resources for how to teach sexual values, not behavior prescriptions to our children in the way that is appropriate, not sinful, but age ready. That's so interesting because you're right. We were given a list of behaviors, right? So you, you start dating at 
16, you wear these kinds of clothing, you date in this specific way. And we were told then, they were values. These, you know, every, right. stan- every standard. And that value. God really cared about, you know, these, yeah. these values, right. And especially, they're not values, they're behaviors. Right. And you know, that God really, really, especially cared about these things. So it's just a lot to put on a teenager and then, and then we'll get married and then you'll have, be having great sex within that marriage thing, but like holy sex, right? Like you'll still, even after you're married, it's like, you know, you have that thing in the eighties that says like, we don't do oral sex over the pulpit. <laughs> and, you know, so it's just, you're right. There, that was all behaviors and prescriptions and none of it was, was value driven. So interesting. So I have a question about um, swinging, which is kind of, um, Something that I just hear a lot about as people are deconstructing, there are groups, um, you know, post-Mormon groups uh, where, you know, they'll want to explore alcohol and want to explore these new kind of friends who are also deconstructing. And then before you know it, the alcohol is in the hot tub and then we're making out with each other's wives. and, um, And there are people who specifically have not joined like the post-Mormon group that I run in, in Boise that you've presented a sexual, you did a sexual presentation for us, which was so, which was so lovely. But there are people who specifically didn't join that group mm-hmm. because they were afraid it was a swingers group. And I'm mm-hmm. hearing about groups in Utah who have kind of gone that direction and they're kind of post-Mormon group and exploration. So when you're talking about adding a partner or exploring other partners, in a marriage, how are you seeing people do this um, wisely? And how are you seeing this become train wrecks? Yeah, yeah. Because both are possible. Yeah, I've seen both. I, I, I do. It is possible. Um, I think, you know, some of... I'll talk with my couples who are exploring the possibility of uh, practicing consensual non-monogamy about the motivation. Um, some motivations are better than others. Some motivations are more helpful than others. Some of it is rooted in that um, mourning the loss of their um, adolescence, right? Some of it is we really are not compatible. As much as we've tried, we're getting very little overlap in the Venn diagram, right? And so there's a lot of different motivation. Um, But I think those who are interested in opening the marriage in some form of consensual non-monogamy, the first principle of it going well or not is whether or not it was consensual. I'll see some people say, oh, we opened the marriage. I'm like, that sounds a lot like an affair. (laughs) I don't know how consensual that was. Did you have agreements? Did you have boundaries? Did you talk about, you know, and it's, um, so that's some of the conversation I'll be having. Another conversation we'll be having is these sexual health principles is people will run headlong into something they wish they had without the communication skills for it to go well. Sexual communication skills are really important. And without the sexual values here of these six principles and, um, and run headlong into creating some issues for themselves. And they create issues for themselves, not because they've opened the marriage, but because they had no education about how, why, or what to do it well. Um, if, if there's anything we can learn, you know, we're having a very heteronormative conversation right now, you know, um, but if there's anything we, the heterosexual community learns well from the queer community and also from the kink community is how to practice consent and how to negotiate in a healthy way. 
where you're not going to go to a sex dungeon and it's a free for all. You're going to have like several hours of instruction before you're allowed to play. You're going to have to fill out a form of consent of will there be penetration and what kind? Will there be mouths involved? And there's all this negotiation of yes to this and no to that. And if you break those rules, nobody plays with you any longer. There's so much focus on integrity in these communities that we can learn from as heterosexual couples. Um, So many times where they're not practicing sexually, even in a marriage with very much integrity, they're not sticking to their agreements, they're not practicing consent, they're not, you know, if um, this sounds a little unsexy, but I always like to bring it back to food because it makes a lot of sense. If we're going to make dinner together, analogous to have sex together, we're probably going to talk about what we're going to make. Otherwise, if it's all nonverbals and mind reading, I'm like, okay, my husband grabbed the lettuce. I think we're doing a salad. Okay, I will grab the other salad ingredients. I turn around and I'm like, oh, crap. Mm, that does not look like a salad. I have no idea what he's going for. And we're living in our heads and we're mind reading and there's so much anxiety and we don't have the communication skills to say, nope, I felt like a burger. Do you want to make that with me? I'm like, okay, the lettuce, I started shredding it like for a salad, but you want a big leaf to go on your burger, you know, that those skills matter whether we're opening the relationship or not. And we just don't have them. It's so interesting. It's something that you mentioned before when you, um, when you were doing your presentation with our Boise group of uh, how good the queer community is about saying very early on in a relationship, like, what are you into? Mm -hmm. And how late that conversation comes for, you know, for some of us heterosexual couples. I mean, there Mm -hmm. are people, including myself, you know, that will be married 20 years before you ask someone, what are you into? into? Yeah. And some of it is that isolation from self and anyone outside of the norm has had to face that incongruence and figure out who they are sooner and quicker than we have because we get to pass as normal. Right. Right. So some of it is that isolation from self. Some of it is that communication skills. Like the difference between a kink and a fetish is a fetish. It's required for there to be arousal and in Puritan Um, worlds, there is almost a fetish for penetration, where something has to be penetrated, either a vagina or a mouth or an anus in order for this to be a sexual encounter. It is very possible for people to be into a lot of sexual activities and not enjoy penetration. But that was the very definition of sex that most of us were given. Sex is a penis and a vagina. And it almost has now become that has to happen for it to quote unquote count, which I'm like, okay, we've created a fetish, a penetration fetish in most of the heteronormative religious communities. And for some people, that just isn't what they're into. Do you remember the, the do you remember the numbers? You said some number of of the percentage of, you know, if it's a first time sexual experience for a heterosexual couple, the woman will orgasm, it's like 20%. But if it was a if it was a woman and a woman, it was like 80%. Do you remember what that was? I don't. It's um, what we're talking about now is more in uh, Lori Mintz's research. And she's the author of the book Becoming Cliterate. And everybody should read that, uh, whether you are a vulva owner, or you love a vulva owner. Um, but yeah, yeah, that there is a, a lot more sexual satisfaction um, in 
those um, same-sex relationships as far as understanding how anatomy works. Mm -hmm. So interesting. Mm -hmm. I uh, maybe to hit on this ethical non-monogamy stuff for just another moment. It, the marriage divorce rate, you know, among kind of just a heterosexual husband-wife kind of marriage, it seems like it's just below fifty percent, if I'm not mistaken. That sound about all right? Yeah, and so, it's not increasing. I mean, the church wants to tell us it's increasing, but it was actually highest at the eighties. Gotcha. 80s, so. so let's say high forties, mid forties, somewhere in there, and people now jumping in because people people were sold a certain way to live their life as if that's the way everyone should. And so people, it seems very natural for people to explore this space. Um, for those who do, I mean, it would feel to me, it would seem to me that the numbers would be much more likely in terms of, um, I don't want to say dysfunction, but things going south, things going wrong once you bring more people in. Um, any thoughts there? I mean, are, are people experiencing success with ethical non-monogamy or is it, I mean, it sounds fun, but is it really worth the risk? Is there, is there a serious chance that you're going to screw up the, the relationship you have? Um, or is the divorce rate essentially the same? Well, it depends. And so we're talking about this in general when, um, if a couple was wanting to open the relationship, we'd be talking about the agreements in four different areas. Picture a quadrant here. Okay. One would be, what are our agreements sexually? The other quadrant is socially. The other quadrant is romantic or emotionally. And the other quadrant is practically. And so we're having discussions about who of these other people can go where. So the primary relationship is often the original couple and they have an agreement. We can go to all of these four quadrants together. All four of these quadrants, we can be emotional and social and sexual and the practical, meaning the bank accounts and the soccer games. So when we open a marriage, the discussion is, does this third party get an all access pass to all four of these quadrants? Usually no. Okay. So um, they may be opening it to, it is just sexual. And here are agreements. Um, maybe it can't trump or replace our relationship. Or if they find out late in life, they're in a mixed orientation marriage. Hey, someone really is asexual that, you know, we have these agreements. So I think when it goes south, it's because there hasn't been a lot of consideration and there haven't been these uh, agreements about where does this third party, where are they allowed to exist in the relationship? Where are the boundaries of where they're not allowed to exist? And usually we have those conversations about those four quadrants. Um, I have seen it go well a couple of times. I have seen it not go well more than that. And that was kind of my hunch was that it was your, your the, the human emotions that are difficult to traverse seem like they would be much more prevalent in these kinds of situations, jealousy, anger, hurt, betrayal. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, those things come up enough in a, in a uh, monogamous marriage mm -hmm. that when you bring those things, when you bring in another person, you're, it feels like you're going to really have to be in tune with how to have a conversation that's healthy how to voice your concerns over hurt or something having not gone the way you thought and the other person being able to respond healthy back. Mm -hmm. It just seems like that'd be really difficult. 
Yeah, I'll say a lot that people who open their marriage are talking more about sex than they're actually having sex. <laughs> These conversations are hours and they're difficult. We're, there is more talking about the sex than there is having the sex. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there, there is a couple, though, that they changed my mind on this where she was mm-hmm. bisexual and he mm-hmm. um, was um, heterosexual. And they really had all of these conversations and boundaries in place. And so they were, and so really it was, I just got to watch them flourish as a couple as she was able to be more of her authentic self in the marriage by having this other piece um, sexually. And it, she really changed my mind about uh, what is possible when, when two partners are able to have these kinds of conversations. Mm-hmm. And so it, it is really interesting to see the, the people who have done it. And it is a lot of work and a lot more talking about sex than having sex. Um, it, it was really interesting to, to watch her flourish. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, being able to add that piece. It was being able to add, yeah. there's a part of me that's missing in this marriage. That's why I always want to know about the motivation. You know, it takes incredibly mature people to make it work. And I think it can work. But a lot of times it's being driven by the motivation of I feel really um, sexually repressed. And so I want to explore and I'm like, eh, you know, do we have the maturity level and the skills for this to go well? Um, Also, I think when we start to bring down that curtain of isolation from self and people start to realize I do have fantasies about other people and I do, then we have to be really clear that might not be a request. That might not be a move to open the marriage. Um, That the wonderful thing about fantasy is most people enjoy the fantasy because in their brain, they're completely in control of it. And so it goes how it should every time. And the goal isn't let's make all my fantasies come true because that often kills the fantasy. (laughs) Now I'm no longer in control and things went sideways. And so, you know, a really good book for that, for people who are just starting to pay attention to what's on their erotic map, non-monogamy might be on their erotic map as a fantasy and it not need to be lived out to be fulfilling. Um, A fabulous book about that is Lane Miller's book, Tell Me What You Want. And he talks about the role of fantasy and some of the beauty is keeping it mental, but playing in that mental space with our partner. And how to do that um, safely and sanely and within our value system. That, but some people think, oh my gosh, they've got this fantasy. We have to make it come to life. It's like, not necessarily. I have a super off the wall question that I definitely didn't give you in advance. <laughs> awesome. That I would only ask someone like you. <laughs> so I love this show. I don't know really why I love this show, but I love this show called 600 Pound Life. Okay. Is it Very the interesting. No, it's not the sis- okay. sisters. Just, just uh, that kind of uh, you know, because they go into their trauma, and I'm just super into any kind of like human dysfunction show, like Intervention or My Weird Addiction, Six Hundred Pound Life. For whatever reason, I'm drawn to these shows. I'm really mm-hmm. interested in um, how people will attach onto something early on and how they get stuck there and how they maybe get out of it and all of that. Mm-hmm. And often in that show. You know, there's there's definitely trauma. You, uh, there's never been a 600 pound person on the show who did not have some kind of trauma where food was soothing in that trauma. But there's often a sexual thing going on where they get bigger because of like a feeder relationship, where mm-hmm. someone is feeding them because it turns them on sexually. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I really like I'm I'm interested in sex and why 
and I can understand, okay, I understand why that turns you on, or I can get there, I can understand why that's hot, or at least why that would be hot for you. And I genuinely just like want to understand why would someone watching someone feed themselves be sexually arousing for someone? And I've never understood maybe why, like, what is what is the pillar that's being hit for that person? I've just never mm -hmm. understood that sexual arena anything it's probably one of those four if you were asking Morin, was um could feel powerful um and it could be violating a prohibition of we should not be eating this you know and mm -hmm. so probably one of those four yeah so um, interesting mm -hmm. yeah it's fascinating stuff, you know, and um, I would love to do this again if we want. Um, it's hard to hit this all in, you know, in an hour, um, breaking down um, sexual development and sexual health coming from a Puritan structure. Um, one idea that I did want to mention that wasn't necessarily in one of your questions, but uh, one of my favorite books is called um, Sexual Intelligence by Marty Klein and talks about this lifelong erotic life, uh, free from what our body can and can't do, right? Because there's so much misinformation or assumptions that, okay, um, if you lose your capacity to have an erection, you can't have an orgasm. No, you can have an or orgasm without an erection. You can have an orgasm without prostate. You can have, you know, all these ideas about how we have lifelong um, relationships if there's things like cancer and um aging and bad hips. And it's a really, really excellent book that focuses on rather than focusing on the performance aspect of sex, focusing on connection and pleasure. Um, but one of uh, the quotes in that book that I really love that I think we hit on a lot coming out of the Puritan cultures, if your divine, if your definition of sexy doesn't include you, we're in trouble. And so we do a lot of can, how can you access yourself as a sexual being? Um, is your definition of sexy so restrictive that it's you when you had a 16-year-old body in a 16-year-old bikini? You know, it's really opening up these definitions so that we can be included in them. And that is very, very tricky coming from a Puritan mindset because there's been so much work to not identify ourselves as fitting in the definition of a sexual being, you know, mm, that's so good. I, if we were to do another hour with you, I would love to go into that. Cause I just, mm -hmm. especially for, for, for women, that is just, I see that, mm -hmm. um, influence, influence a lot. My last question. And then Bill, if yep. you had anything and then Bill and I, you and I can talk after Cammy has to hop off here is, I know um, kids need picked up. I know. <laughs> I know. My last, my last question would be, um, so sometimes like you'll, you'll be in this orthodox place and it's super restrictive. And then there'll be this kind of pendulum swing to, mm -hmm. I can have sex whenever I want with anyone mm -hmm. I want anytime. Mm -hmm. And what would you say is something that the hookup culture is missing when we're talking about pleasure? Because I think sometimes I, I read something that said, you know, our young women should have be having better sex than they're having. Mm -hmm. And there's some things about hookup culture that is not serving them, even though it's a reaction to this restrictive. So what, you know, if we were to bring the pendulum back, what are things that hookup culture is really missing when you're talking about yeah. pleasure? Yeah, what you'd want to read is the book Girls and Sex and the accompanying book Boys and Sex by Peggy Ornstein. And she did a fabulous research study with college cohorts looking at sexual pleasure. 
and found not only is there a huge orgasm gap, there's a huge pleasure gap there for young women that, um, and a lot of the hookup culture is, um, focused on, you know, giving head or blowjobs or going down, but it's almost never reciprocated. And so um, it's really interesting to look at uh, who gets what out of hookup culture. Um, And what the girls say they're getting is some status and some power. Um, Well, the men get, no, it's image. That's right. The men, the boys get the status, the girls get the image. So they're trying to control their image of I'm sexy enough, but not too sexy. And there's always balancing this line of being not too much, but also not being enough. And it's a fantastic look at um, hookup culture for the co-ed population with some some statistics, you know, and she concludes the book that, you know, back in the 1950s, there was America found itself at the same place that the the countries in the Netherlands did of how are we going to teach sexual health. And they decided to go into um, a complete sexual health program. And we decided to do abstinence only. And now you look at, you know, how many years later are we 60, 70 years later, our population is so unsatisfied. And theirs is, you know, they have lower unwanted pregnancies, they're, um, they delay sexual experiences by several years, the STD rates are really low, and parents are much more open to talking about sexuality. And if you're going to do it, do it in my home. And how was it for you instead of it's in a bathroom at a fraternity, and it's filthy. And, you know, there was just this moment in time when you can see two countries choose a different path. And we can look out now and realize, comprehensive sexual education was beneficial for everyone. And America didn't take that route. We took the Puritan route. We took um, abstinence only education in our schools and our churches, and we're paying a huge price for it. But it's really hard to admit that that was the wrong choice. I didn't have anything else, Bill. Did you have any questions? I know Cam has to go soon. Nope. Okay. So uh, Cammy, we will let you go. And thank you so much for all of your wisdom and you're just such a great friend and such a mountain of Mm -hmm. wisdom. And we will have you on again to answer all of the follow-up questions that we have that I know (laughs) that I have that we didn't have time. I know that was like a lot in an hour. So thank you. Anytime I can hang out with you, Britt, I want to, I love all the opportunities and Bill, it was good to meet you. Your voice kind of lives in my brain. So it was good to have a conversation face to face with you too. So, um, and if you don't mind, I would really love participation for my doctoral research. Um, that link should be ready next week. Are you guys open to putting it in the show notes? And Yeah. So we'll, we'll put it on the show notes and we'll put it on our Facebook pages too. That and try to get so as many great. people as we can to support you. And we'll, we'll always be here to support your work. So Thank you so much, Cammy. Thank you. Okay. Have a good one. Bye-bye. This has been another Almost Awakened episode. Check us out at almostawakened.org where you can check out past episodes, make a donation to keep this podcast running, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources shared in today's episode. For coaching opportunities or extra support, visit nonsensespirituality.com to meet with certified spiritual director Brittany Hartman.